0: Morning. I had no idea that church news could be such comedy value until this morning. Oh, my goodness. It was the way Andrew just leapt when we said young. um, Really not needed. And I just want to confirm, Tuesday night in terms of uh, musicians and singers and PA folk, um, that is open to everybody apart from Simon Walker. Um, I did see Simon Walker, like his attention picked up. He was checking his diary, am I free Tuesday? I think it was affirmed by Michelle that he was free Tuesday, there's no need. (laughs) Just have a family night, date night, do whatever you want, Um, just relax. Simon had an audition a number of years ago for the band. (laughs) It will not be needed. If we need an Easter bunny, you've got it. (laughs) So if ever there is a Sovereign Grace edition of Alice in Wonderland, you have got the job as the bunny. But apart from that, Have a lovely day night on Tuesday. Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1. Today we are beginning a new series through the Gospel of Luke. Um, If you are newer to Sovereign Grace, you may wonder, what do these guys preach about? How does this work? And on the whole, we tend to take this church through books of the Bible. I divided this wonderful gospel up just a few weeks ago in preparation for this series. I divided it up into 68 weeks And so the way we preach through, we'll probably finish this at the end of 2022 because we will do different things at different times in the mix as well. But what a book this is. What a gospel Luke is. As we will discover as we go through this book, this book was written by Luke. Luke was a Gentile by birth. He's a well-educated and cultured man. He's also a doctor by profession. But the greatest thing about Dr. Luke is the fact that he became a Christian He put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that completely changed his life. And at some point after putting his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he met a man called Theophilus, who was a man of great wealth and social standing. We know that because in the early part of the gospel, he actually calls him most excellent Theophilus. That is the same address that is used of the Roman governors Felix in Acts 25 and Festus in Acts 26. It's usually given to somebody of great significance. And it would appear Theophilus is the patron and sponsor of the whole book. And the point of the book, as we read in the opening verses, is so that Theophilus may be certain in the things that he has been taught. Theophilus, as a Gentile himself, wanted to be certain that, is this true? Is this stuff about Jesus and his life and his death and resurrection? Can I be sure of it? And so Dr. Luke, sponsored by Theophilus, goes out on mission to interview as many people as he can, eyewitnesses that were there at the birth, in his early life, in his resurrection. And actually, Dr. Luke is the only one with a sequel, which is the book of Acts. He gets in on the action, and he starts to see how the gospel is going from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This book that we have in front of us is the fruit of many years of Dr. Luke's labors. He interviewed, it would appear, the 12 apostles. That's what they're referring to in verse 2, where we hear about the ministers of the word. But he also interviewed many others, many other eyewitnesses that were there. And one of the things that Dr. Luke had the privilege of doing in his life is he became a very close friend of the apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 16 and 20 and 21 and 27 and 28, he uses the word we when he's talking about him and Paul. He was actually on mission with Paul. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Colossians in 4.14, says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. It appears that Luke knew that church and he wanted to let them know, hey, just tell them, hey. And in Paul's last days, when he was in prison in 2 Timothy 4.11, he writes, Luke alone is with me. This is the end of many years of eyewitness labor for Dr. Luke. And this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And this is where the story all begins. I've called this message, A New Day Dawns. And we're going to read together from verse 1 that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all their commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the lord a people prepared and zechariah said to the angel how shall i know this for i am an old man and my wife is advanced in years and the angel answered him i am gabriel i stand in the presence of god and i was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news and behold You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that they had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and of the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter into this gospel, Lord, it is my prayer that we would have surety of the things that we have been taught. Holy Spirit, would you bring these words afresh, alive in our hearts, so that we establish truth in our hearts that we can stand on for the rest of our days. Lord, be with us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are some things in our lives that without doubt are just once-in-a-lifetime moments. The birth of a child, getting married, giving and receiving of vows, graduating from school or college, getting baptized in water, planting a new church. All these things are one-time events. You are either there or you are not And one of the things that I found true to be in my life is given these once-in-a-lifetime events, when they come up, they usually come with some type of announcement. Announcement they are about to take place. It may come on Facebook, it may come on Instagram, it may be a text, it may be a phone call, but we want to let others know what is about to take place. And yet, without doubt, in all human history, past, present, and future there has never been a greater announcement ever made than these ones right here in Luke chapter 1. Because these announcements will change the world. These announcements mark the reality that the great plans laid in eternity past have now begun to activate and that will change everything. See, right at the end of chapter 1 in Luke 1:78. He says, and the sunrise shall visit us from on high. It is an eerie metaphor of the coming of the king, the fact that the Messiah is coming. And that was prophesied about hundreds of years before. In Malachi 4, verse 2, written 400 years before any sign of this scripture came to being. He says, but for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves, from the store. Malachi was prophesying of one who would come, with who would be the son of righteousness, who will rise. In the book of Isaiah, which was written hundreds of years even before that, Isaiah had prophesied that before the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, there would come a voice crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That is an echoed in Malachi 4, verse 5a, when he says, when Malachi spoke similarly, he said, behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It's amazing. 400 years before this scripture was even written, there was prophesied of the coming of the son and the coming of one who would precede him. And for 400 years, there's just been darkness, prophetically speaking. No one's prophesied. No one said anything. They're just waiting for this Messiah. When is he coming? And now a new day dawns. It would appear that the long night was about to experience a wonderful sunrise. And it comes with these two astonishing announcements. I have two points then this morning. I just want us to follow these two announcements. They need no introduction. They just need examination. So number one the announcement of the prelude. This wasn't the main event. This is the one who would come before the true king would come. And he's the forerunner. And we learn about him in verses 5 through 25. This whole text then begins with the introduction to what can only be termed as a very dear couple in Zechariah and Elizabeth. Look with me at 5 to 7 again. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Luke is writing here in a very exact doctrinal, historical way. And so he does what every good historian does. He puts this whole scene into its proper political context. It appeared to be nearing the end of the reign of King Herod the Great. This was a time of great oppression for the people of God. And it was during these troubled times that there was this beautiful couple, elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they were living in the hill country of Jerusalem, He tells us that both of these dear folk, they came from the bloodline of Aaron. And so what that meant is they both came from a priestly line. And Zechariah then served appropriately as priest before the Lord. And quite clearly, they are both distinguishable because of their godliness. Now, just to be clear, in the way that is written, it is not saying they are sinlessness. They have indeed sinned. They too need a savior, just like all of we do. But they are nonetheless behaving in a way that is beautiful in the Lord's sight because they are giving themselves to this word and they want to apply it and work through these statutes in their life and it would appear they're doing that humbly and exceedingly well. They are an elderly, wonderful couple. They are a joyful couple to be around. There is great joy within them. That There is one dark cloud that has always covered their lives with sorrow and anguish. And it's the fact that sadly... They were never able to have children. Elizabeth was barren throughout her whole life, and now they've reached an age in their life where, quite simply, it is not going to happen. And to be childless at this point in history was a massive deal. Kent Hughes says it this way in his commentary. He says, In any culture, infertility is an aching disappointment. And for some, an almost unbearable stress. But the burden cannot be compared to that borne by childless women in ancient Hebrew culture. Because barrenness then was considered a disgrace. And sadly, even a punishment. They believed wrongly that if you were barren, God would be punishing you in some way. It was a cultural part of what they believed. We see it with Sarah, we see it with Leah, we see it with Hannah. Now we see it and experience it through Elizabeth's eyes. There was stigma attached to not being able to have children, as if God must be punishing you or disciplining you. So on the one hand, they're living incredibly righteous lives, but to everybody else, they think, what are you doing wrong that's causing this to happen? It's really sad for them. It's been really difficult for them throughout their whole life, and yet all that, incredibly and miraculously, is about to change when Zechariah meets an angel in the temple. Look at verse 8 with me. I'm going to read to verse 11. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. This is definitely a -a once-in-a-lifetime day for Zechariah. And the truth is, it would be a -a once-in-a-lifetime day for Zechariah, even without meeting an angel. This was a huge moment. You see, priests at this time in Jerusalem, they were like 10 to a dozen. There was actually over 8,000 priests serving. And so all they actually did was serve two weeks a year, plus festivals. And so they didn't often get to actually be in the temple and around the temple, but this is one of Zechariah's weeks. He was one of the 24 divisions. This, this division was chosen on this day, and so it was a great honor for Zechariah to be serving the Lord as priest in the temple, he made his way down from the hill country. He was serving in the temple, but incredibly, he's chosen by Lot to this day actually go into the holy place in the temple and actually serve the Lord by burning incense before the Lord and praying. This was huge. This was like a jackpot moment for a priest. You only got to do this once in your lifetime, and then you could never do it again. This was an incredible moment. I mean, if there had been texting there, he would have texted all of his friends. Come and see. I'm going to go into the holy place. This is a big moment in the career of a priest. And so imagine the day. He gets dressed up. He's got all his clothes on. He's, He's an old man, but he puts all his priestly garb on, and he walks past the outer courts. And in the outer courts, there are multitudes, literally hundreds and hundreds of people praying and worshipping the Lord. And then he walks into the inner courts because he's a priest. And so he walks past all the priests who are offering sacrifices, doing all the things that priests do. And then on this day, he makes his way into the, most holy, into the holy place. What a moment. It's like the first time he ever went in. And when he opened that curtain, he would have seen the curtain that divides the holy place from the most holy place. Only once a year, the great high priest can go in there. That is the place where God actually dwells. But he is right here, and he could see the curtain with God's presence being on the other side. He would see in that curtain the beautiful embroidery of the cherubim and the angels, all embroidered in gold and blue and scarlet and purple. To his left then would be the table of showbread. To his right stood the ever-burning golden lampstand. And right in front of him stood the altar of incense. This was his mouth. So he starts to burn the incense before the Lord. He's clearly praying before the Lord. And as he opens his eyes, he gets the shock of his life. An angel. Oh my goodness. An angel is in the room, and his response is loud, and it is clear. Verse 12, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And so it did. Sadly, in adverts, you usually see angels are about this big. They look like angels, and they've got tiny wings. They wouldn't scare anybody, other than in a really creepy, weirdy sort of way. Now, angels in the Bible are huge. They are vast. They are holy. And when you encounter an angel, you tend to fall on your face as if dead. Well, that's what Zechariah does in this moment. He is overwhelmed. And this isn't just any old angel. This is Gabriel. This is the messenger of salvation. Over 500 years earlier, Gabriel had appeared before Daniel, talking to him about a promise of a Messiah to come. Now he stands in the temple, and there's Gabriel. He's overwhelmed with terror. And Gabriel starts this conversation the way he always seems to start the conversation. Do not be afraid. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You know, it would be easy to think that maybe... Zechariah was praying there in that moment for himself and for a baby. But I submit to you that was probably highly unlikely. Given his response of what happens next, I don't think he was praying for a baby. He would have been doing what all priests do. He's praying for the salvation of God's people. He's praying for redemption of the land. He's praying that God would send his Messiah. And Zechariah stands then before Gabriel and Gabriel tells him, The Lord has heard your prayer. And you're going to have a son. A what? You are going to have a son. And not just any son. Look at verse 14 and 15. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Oh my goodness, this child quite clearly is not any ordinary child. This child is going to bring great joy to Zechariah and Elizabeth as his mom and dad, but this child is going to bring joy to many, many others. This child will be great before the Lord. He has an incredible part to play. John has an incredible part to play in the providence of redemption of God's people. And accordingly, he is to be set aside before the Lord. Said that he's never to drink any wine or strong alcohol. That kind of makes sense. People would think he's crazy saying the things he's doing. Looking the way he does, saying the things he's doing, he must be drunk. So this kid ain't drinking nothing. And this child is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's dramatic. See, so many prophets in the Old Testament, they have the Holy Spirit come on them at different times to be able to tell people about what God is doing. But not John. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That makes him pretty darn unique. And this child is going to be the forerunner to the main event. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zachariah's eyes would have likely been wide with amazement, but when he heard this, his jaw must have just hit the ground. He was a priest. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the way this worked. The last two verses of the Old Testament prophesied 400 years earlier. This is what they say, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers." That's exactly what Gabriel's telling him in this moment. You are going to have a son. His name will be John. He is going to work in the power and splendor of Elijah and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. This is a dramatic response. He knew exactly what this meant. And Zechariah's response is at best grievous. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in You And it's not easily noticeable, but in the way that is put together in the original language, when he says, how shall I know this? He's effectively saying, give me a sign. I want something. So I know this is true. You know, Zachariah, quite frankly, should have known better. I don't want to bag on Zachariah, but he should have known better. For a start, he's speaking to an angel. That should be, number one, giveaway that something supernatural and dramatic is happening in this moment. Number two, he's a priest. He would have known the Old Testament scriptures inside and out. And number three, he's been praying for what? For a Messiah to come. Surely when Zechariah says, hey, he's coming and you are going to give birth to the predecessor, the forerunner, Surely he should have known. But he wants a sign. And he wants a sign because in reality, he's looking within. And as he looks within, he's like, this can't happen. There's no way. You got the wrong blade. See, according to John Chrysostom, the famous preacher from Constantinople, he says, Zachariah looked at his age, his gray hair, his body that had lost its strength, And his wife's sterility, and he refused to accept on faith what the angel revealed would come to pass. And so he did. As he stood before the angel, he's like, uh. Nah, I don't think so. He should have known better, but he didn't. He wants a sign. I don't think he'd anticipated the sign that he was now going to be given. Verses 19 to 20. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring bring you this good news. And behold, here's the sign, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. (laughs) That is not the sign I was looking for, but it is indeed a sign. This is the gracious discipline of the Lord. It is discipline. He should have known better. And the Lord is faithfully going to teach his son, Zechariah, you can trust me. But it's also gracious. It is redemptive. Because indeed in this moment he does become a mute. And when John is born, it is then that his mouth starts to move again. It is all purposeful in in the redemption of the Lord. A discipline of grace is that he will not speak until John is born now all this is taking place in here while all his friends and family are out in the outer courts praying with everybody else and they're checking their watch like this is taking like a long time you know it's like when you're waiting in the car for your kids you're like are they coming you know that's what's happening in the outer courts they're like this is taking too long has he died in there or something has he fallen over broken his leg what's happening well eventually he does indeed come out before them there is this giant game of charades that takes place where he tries to explain, Angel, I don't know how we did it. But he ain't ain't very good at it, and they ain't getting it. And when his priest week comes to an end, he goes home and he spends time with Elizabeth. And this is what we read in 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, take away my reproach among people it's a miracle she was barren and they are old but now she is pregnant and she is pregnant with the prelude to the main event you now that just by itself is a miraculous story is it not? it's an incredible announcement of what is going to take place but that's just the prelude Because then, number two, comes the announcement of the main event. Look with me at verses 26 and 27. In the sixth month, so now six months on, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. You know, when we come to this story, I'm aware that it is like super familiar. So it can be tempting just to turn off. Know it, know it, heard it before, heard it every year. But just try and stop that for a minute and just examine the text. Because when you examine the text, you realize that the greatest news ever to be claimed in Israel would without doubt come to one of the poorest of its people. It's astounding. One would assume that the Messiah would be born in Jerusalem or Judea. Ideally, right by the temple. But that ain't going to be the case. He's going to grow up in Nazareth. Nazareth was a non-place. It was a place that no one came from. That's why Nathaniel, ever outspoken in John chapter 1, verse 46, says, uh, no, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It's like that squad of a place that no one's heard of, about the size of a football field. And that is where God sends Gabriel to. One would assume that this Messiah would be born to royalty, that he'd be born with like jewelry around his neck, that he would grow up in opulence. Negative. He would grow up and be born by a lady who would have been about 16 years old. A Nazarene. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Martin Luther says it this way. He says, For God might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' his daughter, who was fair and rich and clad in gold embroidered apparel, and attended to be a list of and attended to by a list of maids in waiting. But instead, God preferred a lowly maid from a lowly town. It's wonderful. Mary A poor girl would have been about 15 to 16 years old when Gabriel stands before her. Imagine that moment. Gabriel greets her, verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one. The Lord is with you. And in that greeting, as Gabriel no doubt towers over this young 15-year-old girl, He tells her two things. It's such a beautiful declaration of a greeting. Firstly, he he wants to help her see, Mary, you're the favored one. And so she was. Because she was going to give birth to the king. Martin Luther again, he says, Oh Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. And no woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. For you are the crown of them all. And so she was. God had bypassed Jerusalem and Judea. He had bypassed the temple and he had stepped into a despised country town with a lowly girl that in reality the world had never heard of. But She was the one. She was the one who had been chosen by the Lord to actually give birth to the Messiah, the coming king. And secondarily, then Gabriel says, and the Lord is with you. You know, that's just a beautiful reference there to the Lord's dynamic presence, how the Lord's dynamic presence is with you. See, there's nothing Catholic going on here, okay? There is nothing said here in this text at all that Mary has a special grace, so we should pray to her and she'll somehow dispense grace. No, he says that she's the recipient of grace. She's the recipient of favor from the Lord. She's been chosen out of millions. And Mary, I'm going to use you. Well, Mary, understandably, is shocked, verse 29. But she was greatly troubled, you would assume, at the sight of Gabriel. No, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. There's no doubt Mary was a special lady. She was humble, she was full of faith, and she clearly had a quick mind. Because if she stands before Gabriel, hearing this greeting, her mind is aware, what is this going to mean? what's this going to mean for me? Why me? Gabriel starts to tell her, verses 30 to 31. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Fifteen years old not married. I've just found out I'm going to give birth. Pardon me? What a astonishing moment. This is a thunderbolt moment in Mary's life. And when you hear his name's going to be Jesus, you think, oh, she must have understood. She must have understood. Lots of people are called Jesus. Jesus does mean Savior, but lots of people are called Jesus. If you watch if you watch football, particularly if you watch South American football, you'll find there's lots of Jesuses running around everywhere. It was a common name. It's still a common name now. So in this moment, she still hasn't really understood. She's understood, I'm going to get pregnant. I'm going to have a boy. I'm going to call him Jesus. And Gabriel does the drop mic moment and explains exactly who he's going to be. Verse 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Now Mary gets the thunderbolt. She's going to give birth to a baby boy. And yet more than that. She is going to be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. For the dawn has come. 400 years of silence has ceased. She is going to be the Messiah's mom. She is to call him Jesus. And this Jesus will be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one the entire world has been waiting for. And she, this 15 to 16-year-old girl, is going to be his mom. This is astonishing. And so she inquires, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin. See, this is very different to Zechariah. Zechariah was pushing back, wanting a sign. She's just asking a question of inquiry. Hey, I believe you. But the thing is, I'm like 15. And I've never been sexually intimate with anybody in my life. So, how's that going to happen to me? Gabriel continues, verses 35 to 37. See, what becomes clear in this moment is not something of sexuality. It's not something strange going on here. It's the very fact that the Holy Spirit will effectively hover over her and she will then conceive a boy. And this is Mary's response, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word." It's beautiful. This 15 to 16 year old girl responds with absolute surety and faith. I believe you and you can use me in this way. Leon Morris describes it this way in his commentary. He says, Mary's response is one of quiet submission. Servant simply means slave girl and expresses complete obedience. And this is reinforced when the phrase, let it, with the phrase, let it be to me according to your word. For we are apt, listen to this, we are apt to take this as the most natural thing. And so we are. We get so used to this story. Oh yeah, this is what happens, this is what happens, this is what happens. We are apt to take this as the most natural thing. And yet accordingly, we miss Mary's quiet heroism. She was not yet married to Joseph. His reaction to her pregnancy might have been expected to be a strong one. And we do learn in the Gospels that he did in fact think of divorcing her. Likewise, while the death penalty for adultery does not seem to have been often carried out by now, it was still there. Therefore, Mary could not be sure that she would not have to suffer, perhaps even severely. Yet she recognised the will of God and gladly accepted it. Isn't it beautiful? This teenager stands before Gabriel and she is a wonderful picture as she trusts in a sovereign God of surety and faith. I believe you and I'm all in. And my friends, it is that surety and faith, I believe, that the Lord wants us all to have in response to these great announcements. This whole book is written so that you may have surety concerning the things that you believe. And our only appropriate response then is our belief. Just like Mary believed in this moment, what Luke wants us to do is go, I get it. I see it. It must be true. I'm sure of it. And my friends, it is always the truth that can set us free. You know, one of my greatest concerns as a pastor and a guy who just seems to be getting older or or, all the time, is the fact that this world is eroding truth again and again and again and again. There's no such thing now as absolute truth. So when it comes to gender, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to God, when it comes to creation, when it comes to sin, when it comes to mankind, you can believe whatever you want to believe. It is wrong. My friends, this is the truth. The word of God is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. This is the word that we stand on. It's not gray. It is black and white. We stand on truth with surety and certainty. And my friends, everything I have told you today is the truth, just like it was the truth from Gabriel to Zechariah and Gabriel to Mary. The question is, how will you respond? My friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, this really is the truth. The truth of the message that I've taught you today is as sure as the words of Gabriel to Zechariah and to Mary alike. And it is a truth that will ultimately culminate in Calvary. See, not long on from here, indeed 33 years on, Jesus would be hanging on our place at Calvary. And when he declared, it is finished, the whole point is in that moment, he was giving his life away as a ransom for many. He came as the savior of the world. A new day does indeed dawn. Listen, if you don't know Jesus and that raises questions for you, I get it. Because once upon a time, that was me. I was sitting here for like week after week after week. The penny hadn't dropped My friends, I want to encourage you, examine the truth and then make your verdict. This is the truth and it has the ability to set you free. If this raises questions for you, then come and ask them any week as we go through the Gospel of Luke. If you're like, I don't get it, can I talk to you about that? The answer will be yes. Let's talk about this stuff. But don't walk away from the truth. It can't be true for some and not true for others. I know that's what the world tells us, but if I take us up in a hot air balloon and you believe in gravity and I don't, and we both jump out, we're both going to die. Truth is truth. My friends, if this raises questions for you, then come and ask them. Go on Christianity Explored. And if this raises faith in you where you realize this must be true. And put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that in that very moment, you will be saved. And there will be a party in heaven going on because you repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And, brothers and sisters, for those of you that know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, into a world that says there is no such thing as absolute truth, I want to encourage you yes, there is. This is the truth. Stand on it. Know it with surety. For hope has come. His name is Jesus. It's fact. So live in the good of it. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you that it is necessary. I thank you that it is wholesome. I thank you that it is sufficient. And it is true. Oh, Lord, would we stand on your word as fact, not as fiction? Would we stand on your word as if our life depends on it? And would we never move off it? Lord, I thank you that hope has indeed come. You are indeed a great God that we stand before. After 400 years of silence, you send your angel Gabriel to announce the coming of John and the coming of Jesus. Oh Lord, I thank you that as we look back, we look back with delight, understanding that they came. John did indeed cry out with a loud voice Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who has come to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus, that was you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying, that we may have life. In Jesus' name.